now get the privilege of inviting up some uh, friends of ours, some friends of New Community, Tommy and Allie Brown, who uh, are missionaries, uh, our missionaries here who have been in Nairobi for three years, and before that were here at New Community for nine years, which is a long time. So let's welcome up Tommy and Allie, and they're going to share a little bit of their experience with us. Just use this mic, yeah. Hi. So I wanted to see if there's anyone from Moody. Yeah. And Whitworth. I'm a Whitworth grad. Woo woo. And then Zags. I got a master's at Gonzaga. Yeah. So we represent a lot of um, the crowd. So we um, did have the pleasure of coming to New Community um, both during our undergrad at Moody. Tom graduated from Moody Aviation. And I graduated from Whitworth um, and then Gonzaga. So it's a pleasure to be back. Now we're serving with an organization, Africa Inland Mission. And it's just an honor and a privilege to be with them. We are in missionary aviation. Tom will explain a little bit more about what that is. I want to share just for a brief moment what AIM is all about. There are estimated to be 900 unreached people groups on the continent of Africa. And Africa in the mission, our heart is to reach these unreached people groups. And when you think about what would make them not be reached, and what we mean by reached is they don't know the Lord. Um, Less than 5% or oftentimes zero of the people there are walking with the Lord or even know about Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons they're unreached is you physically cannot get to them. I know that's hard to imagine, um, but you just can't physically get there by road, or even if you were going to get there by road, it would take two to three days, and there would be bandits and potholes and maybe a river during rainy season across the road. Um, So that's where the plane comes in to get us there. The second reason that they may be unreached is they're just really, they live in really harsh conditions. Has anyone in the crowd seen The Gods Must Be Crazy? Okay, a few. Um, There's a tribe in that where they literally get water by breaking open gourds and getting a few drops, and their bodies are just prepared to do that. Well, um, I'm a Westerner, and I can't quite embrace those harsh conditions quite yet, Um, but I want those people to know about Christ. So another way that the airplane comes in handy is to bring supplies to the people willing to live in harsh conditions. And so when we think about the body of Christ, we admire the people we get to serve, and we refer to them as the hands. They're doing hands-on ministry and sharing the gospel. And we refer to ourselves serving in aviation as the arm. And if we weren't the arm, they couldn't be the hands because of the locations that they're serving in. So, like Ali said, um, being in missionary aviation, we, yeah, we're going to show a little video in a minute that will give you a picture. It's it's one example of one story of one place in Africa where Amer has supported the missionaries who've lived there for the last several decades. And um, it kind of has a, it's a, it's a happy ending story, and there's lots of places in Africa that don't have that happy ending yet, and it's our prayer and our hope, and the thing that we are here passionate about and excited about why we live there is to see all of the other places in Africa, all the other towns and villages and tribes have um, 
this kind of an outcome that you're going to get to see. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys know, but you are a part of us being there. Uh, you, um, New Community supports us, and so by being a part of New Community, you support us. So thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. Um, it's what makes it possible for us to be on the ground support. And we do have little cards with our um, picture. Yeah, so um, we have prayer requests on the back of things that are really relevant um, and specific to us when we head back in July. We'll be going back to Nairobi in July and would just uh, appreciate and covet your prayers and thoughts for us. So I'm going to add that this movie might be, um, it'll show what we do, but life is actually tough. So um, grab a card and pray for us. We really need it. Yeah. So um, without too much further ado, we'll show the video and um, end with that. And you'll see, um, this is one of the a flight that I got to do just shortly before we came back to the U.S. And so it's just filmed with my GoPro camera that I carry in the plane. And you'll see we're down close to the grass. That's the runway, just in case you're not expecting that. And um, you can hopefully be able to get a picture of what of why we're there. So thank you so much. Thank you guys for sharing. And again, to all people that are uh, leaving for mission this summer, uh, we are behind you. And I hope that you feel that. I hope that you know that. Uh, please don't hesitate to send us emails about how we can be praying for you. Um, and we will, uh, we will get a team of people that will be praying for you uh, so you can feel that support as you're gone. Let's jump in this morning. We are back in the book of Romans. Uh, so if you want to grab your Bibles, you can turn to uh, Romans chapter 12. Specifically, uh, this morning, we are going to be looking at Romans 12.10. Just that single verse, Romans 12.10. I want to put up that first uh, picture right now. All right. This is going to be a very, very easy question, but I want to get you guys uh, starting to interact a little bit. Who can tell me what this is? An iceberg, right? Yeah. All right. So, that's an iceberg. Let's, uh, let's do this next one. This is a photo that I recently took. <laughs> not true. I did not take that photo. I actually think that is not a real photo. I think it's fake. Uh, but this, too, is an iceberg. What is the metaphor that goes with this? Who can come up or give me kind of an idea of the metaphor? Kind of just the tip of the iceberg. Right, you can uh, take that down. They say that you only really see about 10% of the iceberg. It's the 10% that's above the water. Now, I have no idea who the they is, and I'm not even sure if that's true, but that's how the metaphor goes. It's just the tip of the iceberg. The, the, the icebergs that we see, the stuff that's above the water, is really only 10% of the, of the overall mass. Most of the iceberg is below the surface. And so we use this metaphor oftentimes as we speak to speak about things that maybe aren't as easily seen or things that are kind of under the surface. I think the principle is somewhat true in Scripture as well, that when we read or what we read is only really about 10% of what's going on and that the real richness, the real depth of Scripture is the 90%. The 90% uh, that you read when you're able to read it in the bigger context of what's going on, when you're able to read it in the way that it was intended to be read, when you're able to read it with a, an understanding of the languages that it was written in. 
And our verse, I would contend this morning, is a little bit like that, that there's kind of this 10% that we could read, but then there's a 90% underneath it, that, uh, that the 90% this morning is what I want to talk about. So Romans 12.10 is this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. So on the surface, the 10%, the verse seems pretty self-explanatory. Be devoted. Love each other. Give preference to one another. Simple. Simple, simple stuff. Now, absolutely challenging to live in this way, but you can read it and say, okay, I kind of know what to do, and now I'm going to go ahead and try to do that. But I think when this verse becomes nothing more than just kind of a short quip or maybe, maybe uh, just an encouraging statement, then when devotion becomes hard, when giving preference seems impossible, it becomes easy just to pass this verse off as another uh, behavior or modification that's impossible. Another thing that Paul writes to, beha- to modify our behaviors that, well, he can really mean all of those things, right? Because that's impossible to give preference to everybody else. And here's where I believe the 90% becomes important. Because the 90% is where we learn not how to modify our behavior, but why we should. It's where we can truly transform as we understand the depth of this verse. And so my intention this morning is to look at the 90%, the part of the verse that maybe you can't just read, in hopes that it gives us context as to why I think this verse speaks far more than to just behavior modification and actually speaks to our core understanding of relationships. Let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll launch in here this morning. Lord, be with us. As always, uh, when we approach the scripture, we pray that we approach it in humility. We pray that we approach it in a way uh, that is open to understanding, that is open to your movement in the midst of it. May our eyes be wide, may our hearts be open to uh, what you desire us to hear this morning. God, speak to us. Speak to us corporately and speak to us individually as we earnestly seek to study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start by looking at the verse itself, uh, for if we can understand the words, then I think we have a better chance of getting the meaning of the verse. So your Bible might say something different than the one that I showed up there. Here's a, a slide that will show you a couple of different translations of this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to another in honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. So some pretty common translations. Uh, Many of you probably have one of those different uh, translations of the Bible, and that's what your verse says. They're all trying to get at this same idea, but you can see that the translation begins to uh, vary a little. Some of the translations use the word devoted. Some say kind or uh, some say love, and some say kindly affectionate. So there's some variation in the way that the structure of the verse is put together. There's some variation in the very words 
that are being used to convey this message. Here's why. In the Greek, there are four different words for love. And for some of you, you may know this. Each one of these words has a unique emphasis. C.S. Lewis famously writes a book, an entire book, describing the differences of these four types of love. And he named it the four types of love, or the four loves. He says that there are four basic kinds of love. And he gives them their Greek names. Agape, the godlike, self-giving love, even towards enemies. Philia, the love of friendship or camaraderie. Eros, the love of romance and desire and sexual attraction. And Storge, the love of affection that arises through natural attachment. Natural attachment to a child, uh, or he says an old shabby sweater, which is a classic C.S. Lewis thing to say. So in verse 9, which we studied last week, you can take that slide down. In verse 9, which we studied last week, uh, the word used for love in that verse was agape, this holy and sacrificial love, the most significant and transforming love there is. And it's agape that led Christ to the cross. But in verse 10, the verse that we're looking at today, we see two different words used for love here. The first one we see is philostorgus, and the second is philadelphia. So let's start with philostorgus. The exact word is only used once in the New Testament, and it is here in verse 10, used once. But we see this word in a lot of ancient writings. This type of love is best understood as the love experienced between a parent and a child. It conveys tender affection. It conveys a sense of strong commitment to each other. It's a form of love that's derived from the bond of family relationships. It's a type of love that is not attached to any type of desirability or uh, or transaction, but is derived only from commitment and unconditional acceptance. Okay, the second one, Philadelphia. This form of love is used throughout the New Testament. We see it often in the New Testament, and it's uh, best uh, understood to describe the sibling-type relationship that we are to have with one another. It's the most common word for love used to describe how we are to interact with one another. And we, I mean the church. So how are people within the church of, uh, of God supposed to be interacting with each other? We're supposed to act like siblings. That's why oftentimes we see the word brothers and sisters or brothers in the scripture. In his great book, uh, When the Church Was a Family, which I would uh, suggest to anybody that wants to read more about this subject, Hellerman points this out. No image for the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family. And no image offers as much promise as family for recapturing the relational integrity of first century Christianity for uh, for churches today. So Hellerman continues to point out throughout his uh, book that in the New Testament culture, the sibling relationship was the most important relationship, far greater than the marriage relationship, far greater. See, marriages were often just the uniting of clans. 
So this family would pledge their son or daughter to be married to this family so that they could unite these two clans and therefore be a stronger unit. So marriages oftentimes were not much more than kind of a, a transaction or a lining of two families so that those two families were going to be stronger than the, single, uh, the families uh, by themselves. But the bond between brothers and sisters was a blood bond. And it was a significant, significant bond in the first century. So back to, chapter, or to uh, verse 10. These two uses of love set the stage for Paul and how he is going to talk in the rest of chapter 12. And I contend that he is going to talk about family. He uses these two words for love to begin to convey this understanding of family amongst us. The greater context of this verse comes in the heels of verse 9, which I spoke about, uh, or or I'm sorry, the nine uh, verses earlier in chapter 12, where Paul really lays out what is involved in living the Christian life. He says things like, first, we must be pleasing and acceptable to God with our bodies and our minds. And that we must be cognizant of our choices and our thoughts. And he explains how we should view ourselves in humility. And how we should keep the unity of the body through sincere and sacrificial or agape love. And now in verse 10, the tone changes. The conversation shifts its emphasis. And Paul begins to use familiar terms. He uses the remainder of the chapter at this point to lay out the responsibilities of how the family of God should act, specifically with one another. In a very real sense, Paul is using these words to communicate and to remind us that we are all reborn of the same spiritual womb and that therefore we are a part of a spiritual family together. One of the greatest privileges of my life has been to be a father. My wife and I have uh, three little boys, and uh, our first pregnancy was twins, so we got two right out of the gates. And I am always, always amazed at their closeness. And maybe I shouldn't be, because being a twin is is a significant thing, something that I will never fully understand, but they literally shared a womb. From the moment of conception, they have known each other. Think about that. There is a unique bond that they have that I will never fully understand, that many of us will never fully understand. You probably only will fully understand it if you yourself are a twin. But they have never known life apart from one another. You could argue that they knew each other before they knew Grace or I. That's a pretty staggering thing to think about. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not brothers and that they don't fight and that they don't argue and they, don't get, al- uh, they get along all the time in those things. They are. They are very much brothers. However, there is never a question of their love for one another. There is never a question of their closeness. There is never a question of will they be there for one another. They have a closeness that I will not understand. And I think it's the same kind of closeness that the church was intended to live with. The same kind of closeness the church was intended to live with. So the rest of chapter 12, which today we're just studying 
verse 10, but the rest of chapter 12 is a list of characteristics and practices of how we should be close in that way, how we should be a family together. And verse 10, which we'll study here, shows us how does a a family care for one another. So here are two big ideas. The church should be characterized by familial love, the love of a family. So this type of love is far greater than hugs at greeting time and the annual passing around of Christmas cards. A family's love is built on something much deeper than most relationships that you or I have together. Now, here is a disclaimer, and I need to say this right now, because anytime you begin to preach, when you heavily use the metaphor of family to describe the relationships that we are to develop, you begin to get into dangerous territory. I understand that not all of us have had a great family upbringing. I understand that families are broken. I understand that families can be polarizing. I know that some of us have experienced horrific families. And I would encourage you, if you are one of those people, if you look back on your family and you say, man, I am not close to my family. I do not love my family. I didn't have a family. If you are somebody that has that experience, I encourage you not just to tune me out, but maybe even listen harder. Because there was an intended way for families to act, and that is the way that I am speaking about families this morning. And I think we all understand what the intention of a family was, how families were supposed to act. So you could either sit there and for the next 10 minutes be skeptical and question everything I say and say, put the things that I say next to your experience and say, well, that guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. But I challenge you to think about family this morning as I use that word in the way that I believe God intended families to be. So the love exists between a family is different than a love that exists between our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. Family is different because it is founded on two things. Family love is founded on commitment and founded on acceptance. Families are radically committed to one another. Commitment to one another that really drives that family forward. It's the type of commitment that does not need to be justified. You never have to justify your commitment to your family. It just is, and it always will be. You will always be available for your brother or your sister. There is nothing that could be done that would make a mother not love her child. It's in the very fabric of our beings that we are radically committed to our, immediately fam- to our immediate families without ever having to develop or cultivate feelings of commitment. You just are because it's the way that you are. Now, Obviously, we live in a world where relationships are often reduced to commodities, things that we consume and then dispose when they are no longer of value to us. We see this in marriages. When the marriage is no longer of value to me, then I have a legal right to move on. This is not an option that you have with your sibling. 
This is not an option that you have with your mom. There is no way to divorce yourself. And even if there was, there is an intrinsic, intrinsic sense that there will always be there for you, that you will always love, that you will always care for, that you will always fight for, that you will always hope for the best in your family. This type of commitment is the type of commitment I believe the church should be recognized by. Commitment to one another under the premise that we are to be like family with one another. That we are born of the same spiritual father and therefore should live committed to always be there for, always care for, always fight for, always hope for the best for each other. Secondly, family love is known by its radical acceptance. We accept our families for who they are. Even when significant differences arise, even when you do not know or you do not like something about your family, there is a level of acceptance that is given to your family that is unrivaled anywhere else in the world. I found this picture of me, and I think it somewhat illustrates the point. That might be kind of hard to see, but that is like a three-inch disgusting goatee that is coming off the bottom of my chin. That is my beautiful wife who literally looks exactly the same. (laughs) We were 19 here, I believe, 19 or 20. There is a radical level of acceptance that is happening in that picture (laughs) right there. We can take that down. Where an acquaintance or a friend may be a certain way or say a certain thing that makes it impossible to stay in relationship with them, a sibling or a parent can be the same way, say the same thing, and it's often brushed off as, well, that's just how my brother is. There's a level of acceptance. Now, acceptance doesn't mean we like everything about everyone else, but it's the willingness to openly take people as they are not as what they can offer us. We unconditionally accept family members because our relationship with them is not contingent upon the value that they bring us. Now, not only did that picture display the fact that my wife fell in love with me despite the way that I looked, but uh, my mom absolutely hated that goatee. That I had a little bit more hair back then, but I would shave it even shorter than it is now. And uh, she, she openly did not like the way that I looked at this point in my life. But I think there's kind of that level of, as a 19-year-old boy, you have to kind of find out your style. And obviously, that style was not that cool, but I was testing some things. <laughs> she accepted me. Grace accepted me despite their aesthetic tastes. Now, obviously, this is a trivial example, but I think it illustrates the broader point that family is united through common acceptance of each other, for better or for worse. Each person recognizes the beauty and the failings of each, other, of each member and yet loves regardless. This type of acceptance that should be shown to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't all have the same tastes. We don't all share the same theological beliefs. We don't all agree on the finer theological points. 
of things. But what we need to do is accept one another in the knowledge and trust that we are all of the same God and part of the same family. Here's the second thing. A church should be characterized by giving preference to one another. This is perhaps the most challenging aspect of truly loving another person. To give preference to another person literally means that you would consider their needs more important than your own. This is why I'm always amazed at the new mother-infant relationship. It might be the single best picture that we have of this idea. See, without training, without instruction, a new mother immediately begins to live in such a way that she gives preference to her infant child. She gives up her time and her sleep and her comfort. Anything that that baby needs, that mother will respond to immediately. That new mother gives preference to that child. For many of us, I think we struggle with the idea of giving preference to one another. This I see in my life when it comes to leftovers. How many people love leftovers here? So if you uh, know me at all, just as America runs on Dunkin's, Kevin Longmire runs on leftovers. That is what I eat most of the time. But how many people have had that experience where you went out to dinner the night before and you very consciously did not finish your meal, but you got it to go? And you put it in that little uh, weird uh, styrofoam container and you put it in the fridge and you know exactly what shelf it's on in the fridge. And even before you're done eating that, you're beginning to dream about when you get to eat it again, (laughs) when you get home. And then you go to work that next morning and the first thing you think of when you're brushing your teeth in the morning is, man, I'm going to get home and I am going to eat those three pieces of pizza so hard. It's going to be unbelievable. (laughs) And during work, you find yourself kind of thinking about it and dreaming about it. And you get in the car and you drive home, cheerful, excited. And then you open that fridge and you look right to that shelf and you notice that that little container is no longer there. And it is the worst feeling that you have ever had in your entire life. I wonder oftentimes if our first thought in that situation is, man, I am so thankful that my wife got to have those delicious pieces of pizza. <laughs> no resentment, no bitterness, just pure elation for grace. I'm so, I'm so happy. <laughs> to Grace's credit, she would never do that because she knows that that's, that would just ruin my life. <laughs> Considering the needs of others is counter to the individualistic, selfish, and materialist ideals that are celebrated in our culture. And however, Scripture speaks boldly in opposition to this. Not only in verse 10 like we're looking at, but Paul affirms the idea in Philippians when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Take a moment right now. Look at the person closest to you that you do not know. 
Look left, look right, look behind you. Find somebody that you came to church with that you did not know. Imagine that person in your head. You don't have to stare at them. That's weird. (laughs) But quietly and without answering, because frankly I'm a little afraid of how you would answer if you answered this truthfully, do you think of that person as more important than yourself? Seriously, do you? Do you consider that person more important than yourself? Think about it this way. If you were both interviewing for the same job, would you be happier if they got it? If you were both chasing after the same girl and she chose him, would you be happy about it? If you had two pieces of flying goat pizza leftovers (laughs) and they ate it, would you sincerely hope that it was delicious for them? (laughs) You see, I think to really live this out, you need to come to the place where you're sitting this morning and consider the health and safety and growth and happiness of everyone around you more important than your own. The action this demands is far greater than just understanding. It's a movement in our very selves to acknowledge the value, to acknowledge the importance of others above ourselves in the same way that a new mother does that for her infant. It's a movement to live in such a way that we concern ourselves with meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters before our own. Let me conclude with this. Romans 12.10, I'll show it again, says this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The 10% of the iceberg we read in this verse is one that encourages love and commitment within the church. It's a verse that I think will help us be better friends. But the 90% is a call to understand and function in a way that relates this community of faith to the same way that we would our families. In a very real sense, this verse is not only calling us into, but assuming that we will become like a literal family with each other. This has very real consequences, both globally and locally. It means that we deeply love the global church. It means we respect not only how we think about it, but also how we talk about the church. It means we openly acknowledge and celebrate that we are a part of a larger family, and that even though the church looks different in all of its unique expressions, we can appreciate and value it for that we know we are connected to it because we are family. For this church, for our community, for New Community Church, it means that we recognize each other as family members. It means we are committed to each other in the same way that we would be committed to our siblings. It means joining or leaving this church is as significant as joining or leaving a family. It means we accept one another with all of the failings and idiosyncrasies that we each embody. 
It means we not only accept, but actively look for the good in each other. It means we actively love each other. It means we have a humble view of ourselves and we recognize others as more important. Either we read this verse at the same surface level and depth that we have for years, convincing ourselves that our jobs are just to be friendly to each other on Sunday, that our jobs are just to invite over that new family that's moved for a meal once they settle in. It means that we just kind of volunteer a little bit on Sundays when it works in our schedule. Or we begin to understand this community as a family, a family that has a rugged commitment with one another, a family who is willing to truly know and be known, a family that understands the health and growth of the entire church is dependent upon our individual willingness to nurture, care, and fight for each other. Verse 10 calls us far, far beyond friendship. It calls us to be family. It's Paul pleading with us to understand our relationships need to go far beyond Sunday acquaintances and casual friends. He's calling us to see the church both globally and locally in the same way that we see our family and then live accordingly. Let us pray.